everyone. Welcome to K-Pop Bookshelf Podcast. This podcast is where we will be exploring Korean popular culture through books. I'm the host of this podcast, Mina, and I can't wait to talk about books with you. Today, we are still reading Shoko's Smile. After the last episode, which focused more about the background historical aspects of the book, I really wanted to talk about some of the actual stories in the book Shoko's Smile, which, as a reminder, is a collection of short stories. Therefore, today's episode will contain many spoilers. Please check this book out, but if you haven't read it yet and you don't really care about spoilers, then feel free to stick around. There are too many short stories in the book for me to talk about all of them, so I will be picking certain selected stories from the book to talk about today. Shoko's Smile As mentioned in the previous episode, the character Shoko is a Japanese schoolgirl who comes to Korea on a school trip. She stays with the main character Soyu's family. Soyu lives with her mother and her grandfather. The character of her mother is sort of a secondary one who Soyu doesn't talk much about until towards the end of the story, but her grandfather is one of the more prominent characters in the book. I found the grandfather character to be the most interesting one, based on the unlikely friendship that is struck up between the grandfather and Shoko. It's especially interesting given how contentious the relationship is between the grandfather and his own granddaughter, Soyu. As you may recall, Shoko and Soyu, the two schoolgirls, only have the common language of English, a language they are both somewhat shaky in. The grandfather is fluent in both written and spoken Japanese as a result of having been a student back when Korea was under Japanese rule. That was the time in which Koreans were compelled to speak in Japanese, and this effort was to rid the Koreans of their Korean identity and make them more Japanese. I want to take a minute here to veer away from the book for a bit. As I mentioned in the last episode, Japan enforced Japanese language learning through a formal policy as part of its larger assimilation program. I was interested in this aspect of the Japanese colonization of Korea, the requirement to speak Japanese and even change your name from a Korean name to a Japanese name. I only found out about this a couple years ago through writer Alexander Chi's essay in the New York Times, which I talked about last time and is linked in my blog. And I recently found a movie called Mal Moi, The Secret Mission. I happen to find and watch this on Viki, but I think that depending on where you live, it may also be available on Netflix or another platform called Tubi. This is not an ad for any of these services, by the way. This is just factual information in case you want to check out this movie, which I do recommend you do. This movie is partially based on a true story and is about a group of Koreans who risked their lives to try and preserve the Korean language in a time when it was compulsory to speak only Japanese. So I am now going to talk about the movie Malmoi just because I thought it was interesting and there will be spoilers. So if you want to watch the movie, you can pause or stop the podcast here, take the time to go watch it and join us after you have done so. The film Malmoi does have strong strains of Korean national pride throughout the movie, which makes sense given the subject matter, but it also gives us an idea of what it was like to live under those circumstances of being occupied. The story is about a group of individuals called the Korean Language Society, which was a real-life society that still exists, established in 1908 by Korean linguist Ju Shikyong. Ju Shikyong died 
suddenly in the year 1914, so he's not like the main character of the movie. Instead, the main characters are members of the Korean language society who run a Korean bookstore and Korean newspaper and work against the Japanese pressure to eliminate Korean. Specifically, they are working to preserve and standardize the Korean language by collecting all of the Korean words they can in all of the Korean dialects and deciding which words will be considered the standard Korean word for a certain object or concept. And this collecting of Korean words is called malmoi in Korean. The collection is sort of like the first draft or the notes of what will eventually be made into a formal Korean dictionary. A manuscript of the real Malmoi is housed in the National Hangul Museum in Seoul, which is near the National Museum of Korea. In the movie, spoiler alert, the fact that the Korean language society is working to collect words to complete a dictionary is known to the Japanese authorities, who obviously are not happy about it. So the Korean language society are risking their lives by doing this. And in the end, people do die as a result. These characters are seen as martyrs in the movie who died for a greater cause. I want to point out the real-life individuals who worked towards this effort too, which took years to finish. They actually didn't even finish the dictionary until after World War II was over and the Japanese occupation of Korea was over. So I will quote this part from the Korean Language Society website. It says, quote, However, the Japanese colonial authorities arrested or indicted all major figures of the society in autumn 1942. From among them, Yi Yunjae and Han Jing died in prison, unable to withstand the torture and cold. Called the Korean Language Society persecution, this incident led to the suspension of all of the society's activities, including the compilation of the dictionary, for three years until the liberation. End quote. So, to go back to the story of Shoko's smile, especially after watching the movie and getting a very small sense of what Koreans who lived through Japanese colonialism may have felt about the Japanese empire, it is really interesting to see Grandpa become close to Shoko through his written letters. He learned the Japanese language under duress. There's even some comment in the story about how he was beaten by his teachers if he made a mistake. This is also depicted in the movie Malmoi, as there is a subplot involving the son of one of the Korean language society members who has to endure the Japanese language education system that was implemented. Next, we're going to go from a story where Korea was the unwitting victims of oppression from a foreign country to one where Koreans exhibited brutal aggression. The story Sin Chao Sin Chao, again, apologies for my pronunciation errors, takes place in Germany in the 1990s. The characters consist of two families who emigrated to Germany, one of which is a Korean family and one of which is a Vietnamese family. These two families are friends who communicate with each other in German. In this story, the way that these two families meet is because the two fathers are colleagues at work and then their children, a 13-year-old Korean girl and a Vietnamese boy named Tui, go to school together. So the Vietnamese family invites the Korean family over for dinner. In the story, the Korean girl's character, whose name I don't think we ever find out, is remembering everything that happens in the story as an adult. Some examples of the friendliness that the Vietnamese family showed towards the Korean family is sharing homemade lotion due to skin issues that the Korean family was having due to the dry German weather compared to the climate of their respective home countries. There's a part in the story where the main character thinks regarding Mrs. Nguyen, who is the Vietnamese neighbor, quote, Mrs. Nguyen understood our worries before we mentioned them. She came to the rescue whenever we had to call the plumber or talk to the landlord. Above all, she was the only one there for mom, who was trapped in the house all day wrestling with a two-year-old, end quote. As someone who is the child of immigrants, I can relate to the experience of immigrant families bonding with each other, even if their countries of origin aren't the same place. 
having someone to show others just the logistics of how to get things done, having someone to assist with the language or cultural barriers can be a huge help. So it's no wonder that these two families bonded so well, despite their own cultural and language differences. The main character thinks to herself, quote, I didn't know it back then, but I realize now that neither of our families had any close friends apart from one another, end quote. I think that's indicative for a lot of immigrant families, especially prior to the internet age. There wasn't really an easy way to make friends or to know other people. So having people who just sympathized or empathized with you because you were new, because they too were once new, was really valuable. The character of Mrs. Wynn is a warm woman who makes a young Korean girl feel at home when she is a child, but there is a sadness about Mrs. Wynn that the girl doesn't really understand. Later, there's a scene in school where the Korean girl's in class with Tui, the Vietnamese boy, and the teacher says, quote, fortunately, World War II is the last war to bring about such a massive scale of killings. End quote. Now this story and this particular memory takes place in the 1990s, so well after World War II. I'm just inferring that since the setting is Germany, the students were probably learning about the terrible tragedy of the Holocaust and possibly the atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan. But after the teacher makes this comment, Tui points out that many people were also killed during the Vietnam War, specifically his own extended relatives. He mentions that soldiers even killed children and that the entire village that his family came from was gone. In a later scene, the Vietnamese and Korean families are dining together at the home of the Vietnamese family and the topic of Japanese colonial rule comes up. The Korean girl had been really impressed with Tui's knowledge of the Vietnam War and she also wanted to show off some of her own knowledge. So she says that Korea never invaded any country, nor did they ever hurt anyone. Now that was something she had learned in school back when she lived in Korea. And her parents are hearing her say this and they're just like, um, please be quiet. And her dad even yells at her in Korean. Then Tui says that he had heard that it was Korean soldiers who had killed his entire family. In the previous episode, I mentioned that Korean soldiers fighting in the Vietnam War as U.S. allies did conduct some of the massacres of Vietnamese civilians, including women, children, and the elderly. However, the Korean government did not ever formally fully acknowledge these claims. I also mentioned that the Vietnamese victims groups had petitioned for a formal apology and that one victim was even suing the Korean government over it. I linked to some articles and things that I've read about this in my research for the previous episode on my blog, so do check it out if you're interested. I think that the author's choice to have this young girl make a sort of innocent comment, the crux of this story was really engaging. Because as kids, unless you yourself live through war, you just see everything kind of in black and white, and you probably don't have that nuanced understanding of world politics and history in quite the same way as people who lived it or as an adult would see it. But Tui seems a lot more attuned to what happened to his family, as his family seems to have been really open with him and shared with him the exact brutal details of what happened and how they felt about it. I find this aspect of the story really interesting too, because I know that for a lot of children of immigrants who, you know, their family members, their parents lived through national tragedies, genocide, and war, oftentimes their children who are raised in another country don't know much about what exactly happened to their family during those terrible times. Often family members don't want to revisit the trauma, or maybe they feel like now that we have this new life in a new place, there's no real need to go back and rehash old wounds, especially devastating ones like this. So the fact that Mrs. Wynn told Tui exactly how their family was massacred is fascinating, especially because the comment the Korean girl made about, oh, Korea never hurt anyone, they never invaded anyone, it was said with this sort of naivete and innocence of a child who just believed whatever it was her teacher told her. 
And Tui, by contrast, doesn't have the luxury of maintaining that same innocence. He knows exactly what happened to his family and who allegedly perpetrated the violence. Moreover, similar to the grandfather in Shoko's smile, actually befriending someone that these people may have at one point considered quote-unquote the enemy is really interesting to think about. Mrs. Nguyen and her husband showed such great hospitality and kindness to the Korean family. They helped them, they fed them, they befriended them. And they were able to differentiate the Korean soldiers who murdered their family and this Korean family, who were just a regular family, newly arrived in a foreign country, the way they themselves had once been. Neither the grandfather from Shoko's Smile nor Mrs. Wynn and her husband see the other characters as the enemy or have harsh feeling towards them just because of their ethnicities, although you could kind of imagine them feeling animosity towards them. But they don't possibly because time has moved on and there's like maybe more physical distance from those events and what's going on in the time of the stories in addition i like that the author of the book who is herself course korean is sort of forcing readers in this case korean readers whoever reads this book to face their country's past I said in the last episode that I don't want to ever villainize just any one country because frankly most countries have done some pretty horrible things at one point in their history or another. And I'm also not sure exactly how the Vietnam War is taught in Korea, whether it makes sense that a teacher would teach students that Koreans quote, never did anything wrong to anyone, that we've only ever been wronged, end quote. Since the author is Korean, I'll just take her word for it that this is a realistic scenario. And of course, plenty of people do get caught up in a nationalistic fervor from time to time. But the author is using the words of this naive child to force people to face the darker parts of their history too, instead of only acknowledging the times in which they were victimized. We then get to see the characters' various reactions to the Korean girl statement. Mrs. Nguyen, the Vietnamese neighbor, scolds Tui, her son, and reassures the Korean girl that it has nothing to do with her as it happened all before she was born. The Korean mother is very reconciliatory, apologetic. She's trying to empathize with this family, even though it's not like this is really even her apology to give. She gives an apology to the family. And that's an interesting choice. I keep using the word interesting, but it's an interesting choice because I think that the Korean mom is not sure what to do. Or how else to handle the situation. She wants to maintain the peace and just wants to keep being friends with these super helpful, super friendly people. Her husband, the Korean father, however, gets rather reactive in a negative way. His reaction is sort of like, well, so what? That was a long time ago. And mind you, he's mainly reacting this way towards his own family in Korean so that the Vietnamese family can't understand him as easily. But I mean, they're watching his body language, so I'm assuming they kind of understand his take on it. The father tells the Vietnamese family that his own brother was in the war and that, quote, he was just a mercenary, end quote. And Mrs. Nguyen points out that the Korean soldiers killed infants and old people. And still, the Korean dad is just making excuses, saying things like, well, it was a war. He says, quote, what do you expect me to say? I lost my brother too, you know? Isn't this business long over? Would you rather have us apologizing over and over again for it? End quote. I found this reaction really interesting because actually the Vietnamese family did not ask them to apologize. Even when the Korean mom apologized, they were just like, okay, thanks, but you know, that was a long time ago. That has nothing to do with you. The Korean dad's reaction is what sort of pushes Mrs. Nguyen to the limit and she leaves the room. After this, the relationship between the two families is never quite the same. The Korean mom is really trying to carry on as if everything is fine, but she eventually gives up and they don't really ever hang out or spend time together again. In reading this, I found it interesting how, in general, sometimes we can experience something that we consider to be a major grievance, but at the same token, we can't empathize or sympathize when other people go through a similar struggle. 
that's obviously not specific to Korean and Vietnamese folks, but just generally, in life, this happens. For this reason, I really like the way that this story was written. It wasn't written but from the perspective of the Vietnamese family who suffered so much, or from the Korean family who, for the father at least, also suffered as a result of the Vietnam War. Instead, we witness the whole thing from the point of view of someone who was just a young girl at the time. In the story, the main character, narrator, says, quote, Over time, when a relationship came to an end, I pondered who had left and who was left behind. End quote. The next short story I want to talk about is called The Secret, and a reminder yet again that there will be spoilers. As I mentioned in the previous episode, there are two stories in the book which relate to the sinking of the Sewol Ferry. The Secret is the second of these two stories. The main character of The Secret is Marja, who is a cancer survivor enamored of her 28-year-old granddaughter, Jimin. Jimin is working as a teacher in China. Jimin's mother, Marja's daughter, is named Yongsuk. Marja notes that Yongsuk has been changing over the past year and a half and seems kind of ill. She's also in a very perpetual bad mood. The character of Malja spends the story reflecting on how she raised Jimin, who is so beloved to her, while Jimin was growing up, since both of Jimin's parents worked outside of the home. While reminiscing about raising Jimin, Malja feels sorry that she could not take as good care of her daughter Yongsuk, who is Jimin's mother. Yongsuk's father passed away when she was still just a young child, and due to this untimely death, Malja feels that Yongsuk had to grow up early and was robbed a little bit of her childhood innocence. For this reason, Malja always really doted on and babied Jimin. The whole story is primarily Malja reflecting on her life, including raising her daughter and granddaughter. The reader gets a sense of the deep love she has for both of them. One of Malja's memories is of Jimin telling her that she's only a probationary teacher because she hasn't yet passed the certification exam for becoming a teacher. Malja hasn't heard from Jimin since she went away to teach in China. Her daughter and son-in-law tell her that Jimin, who's not even said goodbye to her, lives in the mountains and it's impossible for her to call or write the family. So you may know by now exactly where Jimin is, given that the story is about the Sewol Ferry disaster, but also it's not directly about that. I mentioned in my last episode the issue with the two teachers, Kim Jo-won and Yi Jie, who went lower into the ferry to help their students put on life jackets, and then who passed away in the disaster. If you recall, the government did not at first give them the same formal commendations, nor did their families receive the same financial compensation, as did the other teachers on the boat who died that day. And it was all due to their probationary teacher status. The government argued that since they were not official teachers, they and their families were not entitled to the same treatment as the others. The way that this story is told from the grandmother Malja's point of view is so poignant. At one point, the grandmother reminisces about telling Jimin that she is just as much of a teacher as any of the other teachers. And this is, I think, the author's way of chiding the Korean government, who I believe at the time that the story was originally written, still had not yet reversed their decision to formally declare the real-life probationary teachers as having had line-of-duty deaths, which they finally did years after the disaster. Yet again, the author is forcing people to confront their past missteps. And again, the author, Choi Eun-young, is also using the voice of someone rather separated from the story to tell the story in an indirect manner. But somehow, in doing this, in my opinion at least, she makes the whole story even deeper than maybe if the story had been told from the point of view of the grieving parents or of Jimin's friends or her significant other. Since, in most of the story, the parents are usually too preoccupied with their grief to pay much attention to Malta, we don't get tons of information about their feelings for Malta. Except for this one key piece of information, which is that they decided to hide Jimin's fate from Grandma, and let her instead believe she is living a life she was meant to live, that she loved to do, 
which is teaching children. To me at least, it comes across as an act of love and mercy from Jimin's parents to keep this information from her grandma, Malja, especially since Malja's own health isn't very good. In conclusion, I again just want to repeat what I said in my last episode, which is that I think this book is well-written and also uniquely written. The way the stories are told around but not actually directly about specific historic events is very fascinating to me. And also the way that the story is told often from the point of view of someone who may not normally be written about as the main character is also fascinating to me. So guys, did you read Choco's Smile? What did you think? If you didn't read it yet, do you think you'll read it now or at least check out some of the stories? As a reminder, you can always reach me on social media. I'm on Instagram at kpopbookshelfpod, pod as in podcast, all one word, no symbols. I'm on Twitter at kpopbookshelf. I'm on Tumblr at kpopbookshelf. And you can send me an email at kpopbookshelfpod at gmail.com. Please send kind words or criticisms or comments. The links in my bio and show notes will take you there. I will also have a link to a few more resources from today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend about this podcast. Okay, thanks. Bye.